Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Princess Amethyst Alexandria, Augusta Araminta, Adelaide Aurelia Anne of Phantasmorania, from The Ordinary Princess by M.M.K. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest, Kirsta Christensen. Welcome back, Kirsta. Thank you. So glad to have you on, and also very glad that you recommended this story. I was not familiar with it beforehand, and for any listeners who are in a similar situation, this is a novel published in 1980 that tells the story of a princess who receives a gift from her fairy godmother that she'll be very ordinary. After her family struggles to marry her off in the traditional royal way, she runs away to make her own way in the world. So Kirsta, I came to this because you asked if we could do this for the month of November. I told you that in November on the Protagonist Podcast, we are trying to cover stories that are just pleasant and nice and cozy and warm hugs of narratives. Mm-hmm. And you had said, well, can we do The Ordinary Princess? I'm like, I've never heard of it. Let's do it. <laughs> and uh, this definitely fits that description of just being a nice, cozy story. Yeah, and I, I think I came to it in middle school. I think it was just a book that um that we our library owned and i remember the cover of it um and you know it looked like a nice cover and a nice title and i like a good fairy tale so yeah i'd read it probably a couple times um in middle school or high school and then hadn't read it since but kind of vaguely thought that it would fit uh joe's criteria for november so um i was happy when i when i was able to when i grabbed it from the library and reread it, I was happy that it not only held up, but it actually exceeded some of my memories. Um, so yeah, it's a really lovely little story. And well, I guess I'll save all that for the discussion after we we get to the plot summary, because it does some interesting things that I think it does pretty successfully that updating a beloved story style that maybe has started to feel dated can sometimes run into some issues. And I think, um, the author K really avoids some of the the pitfalls that I've I've seen in some instances. A um, little bit of trivia about the story. So in the foreword, the author notes that she rediscovered some old fairy tale books that she had loved as a child and reread them and was struck by how similar the descriptions of the princesses were in each different fairy tale. So she decided to write a story about a princess who did not follow the classical definition of beauty that she was finding in these old stories. And uh, MMK says that this story is one of the only times that words flowed easily when she had the idea for a story in her head, um, that often writing was very difficult, but this one, uh, and you know, the, both, both the, uh, the characters and the story and also the, uh, you know, the, the way the narrative would unfold seemed to come very naturally, uh, for her. And, uh, the author Mary Margaret Molly K. So it, it had Molly in parentheses. So her name is Mary Margaret, but she went by Molly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so lots of M's happening there. <laughs> she was born in 1908 and died in 2004. And her first published work was in 1937, and her last was in 1999. That is a career. Well done, yeah. <laughs> Mary Margaret Molly K. And she first began working as an illustrator of children's books, and then began publishing children's books that she wrote and illustrated. She also wrote historical novels 
radio plays, a series of suspense novels all titled Death in dot 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 and then an exotic locale that was part of the British Empire. <clears throat> Let's just say she was writing these in the in the 1940s and 50s, I think. And and uh, you know, what counted as an exotic locale it has varied. And, and maybe we're interrogating that a little more in the modern day. Um, and she also wrote several other novels. Her historical novel, The Far Pavilions, was adapted as the first HBO miniseries in 1984. Wow. That is like, you know, that's what HBO does now. <laughs> and she, she was there at the ground floor. And it's also been adapted as a musical play. So very prolific and long career um, for for her. And um, I kind of got fascinated the more I was reading about her. I'm like, how, how have I not known about this person before? Yeah, and I love it when you discover those people, um, you know, online where you like you just kind of end up down a rabbit hole. And it's like, oh, you know, everything I read is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, and I had heard of the Far Pavilions, but I didn't connect that story with her until I was doing, you know, similarly reading up a little bit on her and be like, oh, she also wrote this other thing that I'd heard of that I've never read. But but yeah, I just had read this one. Yeah, I saw that the Far Pavilions, which is um, it seemed to be semi-biographical about her some of her father's stories if i'm remembering I, I, I was kind of skimming that trivia but it said it was popular enough about um the time of the british in india that even to this day there's like um tour tour guides that will take you to locations inspired by the the far pavilions uh and so it's it's still having an impact hmm. I mean, maybe not in 2020. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the tourism industry struggling across the world. Uh, you know, well, we don't have to talk about that right now. Uh, but before we move on to the summary of this story, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes in the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So uh, Kirsty, you were kind enough to write the summary for The yep. Ordinary Princess. So I will let you take that away. And I'm actually going to do something a little bit different this time. I'm going to start off by reading pretty much the first page because it does such a good job of setting up uh, the story. And then I'm going to transition into my own summary. I'll allow it. All right. <laughs> long and long ago, when Oberon was king of the fairies, there reigned over the fair country of Phantasmarania, a monarch who had six beautiful daughters. They were in every way all that real princesses should be, for their hair was as yellow as the gold that is mined by the little gnomes in the mountains of the north. Their eyes were as blue as the larkspurs in the palace gardens, and they had complexions like wild rose petals and cream. Their royal mamma, the queen, was very proud of them, and they had all had extremely grand christenings when they were babies. She had called them all after precious stones and was often heard to refer to them playfully as my jewels. Their names were diamond, opal, emerald, sapphire, crystal, and pearl. Every princess wore a golden crown set with the jewels of her first name, so you can imagine the excitement in the city of Fanf, which is the capital of Phantasmarania, when the news leaked out that Messieurs Hebendix and Piphorn, goldsmiths and silversmiths, by appointment to His Majesty King Holderbrand, had been commissioned to make another crown, and this time to set it with amethysts. So there is going to be a seventh princess at the palace, exclaimed the housewives of Fanf. That is as it should be. A seventh daughter is always lucky, cackled the oldest inhabitant. A seventh princess, sighed the romantic maidens, and of course she will be the most beautiful of all. Youngest princesses always are. 
So that's about the first page. Um, and Kirsta, have you ever done narration before? I have not. I like so audiobook delighted. narration? I no. But very I very well done. And it's one you. of those instances where, uh, like Brandon Ushio has done this as well, where he like comes in with a summary and is like, oh, well, that's better than any summary I've ever done. I mean, in this case, you're reading the text, but it's like, no, I feel I feel like things have been elevated uh, on my watch without me even knowing this was about to happen. <laughs> I I have that is one of those sort of back burner alternate careers that I think I would find interesting, like voice acting or voice narration. Um, but no, I, that's, that is the, for the benefit of our listeners alone, but that's not something oh. I've done before. Well, delightful treat. Thank you. Okay. So sure enough, when the seventh princess is born, she's more beautiful than all her sisters. Her eyes are blue. Her hair falls in golden curls. She has a pink and white complexion and she never cries. The queen insists that all of the fairies in the land must be invited to the princess's christening, as is the custom for a seventh daughter. The king warns that inviting fairies to a christening may be rash, and alludes to his great-great-great-grandmother who had to sleep for a hundred years because of a fairy at the christening. That's a fun reference. The prime minister, however, reminds the king that in that case, the episode was due to not inviting one of the fairies to the christening. The king still expresses misgivings, but accedes to his wife's wishes. On the day of her christening, the seventh princess is officially named Amethyst Alexandra Augusta Araminta Adelaide Aurelia Anne. One by one, all of the invited guests present her with amazing gifts, including the fairies, who bestow upon her wit, charm, courage, health, wisdom, and grace. But then the last fairy arrives, the fairy in charge of water named Crustacea. She is old and she leans upon a cane of coral and her robe is dripping with seawater. She has a low opinion of the gifts bestowed on Amethyst by the other fairies, but luckily she says that her magic is more powerful than theirs. So she waves her cane over the princess's cradle and says, My child, I'm going to give you something that will probably bring you more happiness than all these fallalls and fripperies put together. You shall be ordinary. The blessing, or curse, has an immediate effect as Princess Amethyst, the baby with the perfect complexion who has never cried, screws up her face until she looks like a squashed tomato and starts to scream. The king and queen send messengers after the fairy crustacea to beg her to change her mind, but she has already disappeared. After that day, Amethyst's blue eyes become a grayish-brown color, her golden hair darkens into a mousy brown, her curls straighten, her nose turns up, and she gets freckles. Everyone in the palace begins to call her Amy, a more ordinary name, since Amethyst seems much too fancy. She grows into a gawky child, despite lessons from dancing masters, and although she does still possess all of the positive qualities bestowed on her by the other fairies, no one ever notices them because she is not beautiful. As Amy grows up, she sometimes wishes that she wasn't such a disappointment to the queen, but she's mostly content with her life. Her older sisters have to spend their time embroidering tapestries and playing with a golden ball, and they can't go outside unless they are under a canopy to protect their complexions. Amy, on the other hand, realizes at a young age that she can sneak out of her tower bedroom in the evenings by climbing down the wisteria that grows up the sides. She then spends all of her evenings in the forest of far away, where it is cool in the summers and cozy in the winters. She becomes friends with all of the animals and learns to climb trees like a squirrel and swim like an otter in the forest pools. The rest of the castle tends to leave Amy to her own devices, which suits her just fine. One by one, all of Amy's older sisters get married. Finally, it is a wedding of the Princess Pearl, Amy's sixth sister. Pearl marries the crown prince of Crystalvia, who is very handsome and gallant, but privately Amy thinks he also looks stiff and dull. 
After the wedding, Amy supposes that it will be her turn to get married next. However, her parents have not exactly been forthcoming about her comparative ordinariness, so all of the eligible princes and grand dukes expect that she will look like her sisters. And when they arrive, they are disappointed when they see her and discover that she is not as beautiful as the rest, and they leave without proposing. The king is distraught at the idea that his younger daughter might shame the family by becoming an old maid, so the king and his counselors concoct a far-fetched plan. If, they reason, there was a dragon that was terrorizing the country, and if the princess was stuck in a tower that was being guarded by the dragon, and if any prince who defeated the dragon was promised the princess's hand in marriage, then all of the princes would want to prove their heroism by defeating the dragon, and they wouldn't discover that the princess was ordinary-looking until it was too late. All the king and the counselors have to do is hire a dragon to terrorize the kingdom. Luckily, Amy happens to catch wind of this plan and decides that it is ridiculous. She trades clothes with a commoner girl, leaves a note behind in her bedroom saying that she doesn't want to marry anyone, and runs away to live in the forest. Amy lives happily in the forest for many months, sleeping on moss, drinking from springs, eating berries and roots. She tames a crow and a squirrel who follow her everywhere. She names the squirrel Mr. Pemberthy and the crow Peter Aurelius. She quickly loses her shoes and stockings, but she doesn't mind because she goes likes going barefoot. However, her dress is also tearing and wearing out, and she realizes that she has no means of replacing it. Amy stops to wash by a deep pool and is surprised when a strange-looking woman rises out of the pool and addresses her as Amethyst. It is, of course, her fairy godmother, Crustacea. Amy tells her the whole story of how she came to live in the forest after her father tried to hire a dragon after she couldn't get married, ending with her predicament about getting a new dress. The fairy Crustacea points out that there is a city in the distance and tells Amy that she will have to find work so that she can earn money to buy a new dress when her old one wears out. So Amy heads towards the city of Amber, the capital of Amber Geldar, and gets a job as a kitchen maid in the royal castle of Amber. As a kitchen maid, Amy hears a lot of gossip, including stories about the young and handsome King Algernon of Ambergeldar. All of the other servants think he must be the most marvelous person in the world, but Amy, with her knowledge of actual kings and princes, privately suspects that King Algernon is probably as stodgy and tiresome as all the rest. A few weeks later, the castle is thrown into a bustle of excitement when news arrives that, King, that Queen Hedwig of Plum Blossomburg, the aunt of King Algernon, will be arriving to pay a friendly visit to her nephew. All of the servants suspect that the real reason for the visit is to secure an engagement between King Algernon and the queen's daughter, Princess Persephone. Amy sneaks away to get a glimpse of Queen Hedwig's entourage. She sees that Princess Persephone is indeed beautiful, but she also looks like a bored doll. There was a grand ball and banquet at the castle to welcome Queen Hedwig. Late that night, after finishing her work in the kitchen, Amy decides to sneak into the great hall to see if she can find some leftover nuts to bring to Mr. Pemberthy, the squirrel. She reasons that all of the royal guests will have gone to bed, but the servants will not clear away the dishes and leftover food until the next morning. Amy makes her way up the back stairs into the great hall, where she is surprised to find a young man sitting on the edge of a table eating ice cream. She supposes that he must be one of the senior pages, but he is quite friendly and offers her some ice cream as well. She tells him that she is looking for nuts for her squirrel friend, and further explains that she used to live in the forest and is only working as a kitchen maid until she can make enough money to buy a new dress. She asks him what he does in the castle, and he vaguely answers that he is a man of all work. Before she leaves, he reminds her to take some nuts for Mr. Pemberthy, and then asks her if he can join her in the forest on her next afternoon off. 
True to his word, the young man is waiting for Amy on her next afternoon. They head into the forest to explore, and he makes a necklace for her out of acorn cups. He asks her what her name is, and she says it is Amy. He responds approvingly that it is a nice, sensible name, and she jokes that you would not expect to find a princess named Amy. She asks what his name is, and he says that his friends call him Peregrine. And so it begins that every other week, Amy and Peregrine spend an afternoon together in the forest. Peregrine even suggests that they build a simple house so that they can have a nice place to picnic when the winter comes. Amy thinks that Peregrine is the nicest person she's ever met, and she decides it must be because he is an ordinary person, just like her. Amy has prevented her family from knowing where she really is, but one day her old nurse, Marta, happens to visit a family member who lives in Amber. In a stroke of bad luck, Amy runs into her when she's with Peregrine, and amid Marta's cries of, Oh, your highness, wherever have you been? Amy's secret is revealed. Peregrine looks thoughtful at the news. He had previously called her a princess as a joke, but he is surprised to learn that she is, in fact, a princess. Amy tells her the whole Amy tells him the whole story of how she went from being a princess to a kitchen maid. Peregrine wonders if they can still be friends, since she is a princess and he is only a man of all work. Amy insists that it doesn't matter to her who he is. However, when Amy returns to the castle that night, there are so many dishes to be washed, and she is so distracted at thinking about the evening's events that she breaks some of the dishes and is fired by one of the cooks. She starts to cry as she walks up the stairs to the attic, but Peregrine finds her and says he wants to tell her something. She tells him that she has been fired, and he tells her not to worry that she shouldn't have to work so hard anyway, and he is about to say something else when a door on the landing opens and they are interrupted by a court chamberlain in a very fancy robe. He gives Amy, the kitchen maid, a hard stare, and she begins to worry that now Peregrine will also get fired. To her surprise, the court chamberlain bows deeply and addresses Peregrine as Your Majesty, telling him that his presence is requested in the council chamber, and then he leaves. Now it is Amy's turn to be surprised, and Peregrine looks upset. He insists that he was about to tell her who he was when the court chamberlain interrupted and blew his cover. She asks why he told her that his name was Peregrine instead of Algernon. He points out that Algernon is a pretty awful name, and Peregrine is in fact one of his names. He has eight. King Algernon, a.k.a. Peregrine, goes back to the council chamber and informs his ministers that he is not going to marry his cousin, Princess Persephone, but instead that he would like to pursue an alliance with the kingdom of Phantasmarania. Peregrine and Amy meet again, and Peregrine proposes, reminding her that she said she'd like him no matter who he was. Amy and Peregrine hatch a plan, which begins with them sneaking back on horseback to Amy's home kingdom of Phantasmarania. Peregrine drops her off outside the castle and she climbs up the wisteria to her old room. The next day she comes down to breakfast as if she'd never left at all. Amy says that she doesn't want to hear any more talk of dragons and the king agrees, but privately he and the queen still despair of having a daughter who may become an old maid. They are very surprised then when a week later an envoy arrives on behalf of King Algernon of Amber Geldar to seek Princess Amethyst's hand in marriage and the wedding is set for the following spring. The wedding day finally arrives, and King Algernon of Ambergelder arrives with all of the appropriate pomp and circumstance. Amy does not look much like herself in a gown with a ten-foot train and ropes of gleaming pearls, but Peregrine notices that she is also wearing the little necklace he made for her out of acorn cups. Peregrine likewise looks more formal and kingly than she has ever seen him, but he winks at her as the heralds blow a fanfare, and they both struggle to keep a straight face as they try to prevent, try to pretend they have never met each other before. When the wedding is over, it comes time for the new king and queen to leave on their honeymoon. The courtiers assume that they will travel to one of the king's many fancy castles. Unbeknownst to anyone, they slip away to their forest cottage instead. 
thank you for an excellent summary of just a a charming book. Yeah, <laughs> charming. Yeah, charming is an excellent word for it. Yeah, um, it's interesting because there's there's no real surprises if that if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Sure. Um, in like as you get to uh, her working as uh, the kitchen maid, like I think everyone assumes she's going to meet the king who has been yeah. established as a if, young, if you, charming, good right. person. Uh, if if and- you are at all familiar with genre tropes, it is not a surprise who the mysterious man of work, all work turns out to be. Yeah. And I think if you're going to have that be an element of the plot, that there is some form of a, a, a surprise, but it's also so telegraphed that it's not really being kept as a surprise in any way, mm-hmm. shape or form. You really need to nail the writing and yeah. um, and the overall uh, you know, tone and, and the world the reader's, you know, dipping a toe into. And Kay hits those checkpoints so well that it doesn't really bother anyone. I would imagine that, that you know, we, we know who this this young lad that's a worker. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so it's, um, it's interesting that in the story, like there's, there's the quote unquote twist is key to having the story work, but also it's almost non-essential. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of what this text is doing, I think it's, it's doing a really interesting thing in embracing the fairy tale, as you said, like the genre tropes of the fairy tale and updating in a way that doesn't feel like it's, trashing it which i think some Mm -hmm. modern updates of classic stories that say you know what there's some problematic elements of this and we've got to like do a hard 180 on on things um end up like leaving you like it loses the feeling of what made the original classic and that is i'm not trying to defend like you know fairy tales as being free from issues there are absolutely Mm -hmm. issues in terms of uh gender roles in terms of you know the the race in in terms you know every every issue that you can imagine you can find you can say either by omission or commission there's probably some issues with old fairy tales right it's it's one of those stories that's it's that is both a critique of the genre but also a good example of the genre yes and it doesn't it's interest in critiquing or updating the story in this instance didn't mean abandoning what makes fairy tales endure Mm -hmm. and i think sometimes in updates there is a fine line to walk that gets just trod upon with violence. <laughs> yeah. And it, that's not the case with the ordinary princess. And it's, you know, and it's really not, I mean, you know, for, for all that, okay, she doesn't have like blonde hair, but it's still, you know, it's still a very white, vaguely European story. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not this complete. Um, I think there have been more kind of, um, racially aware updatings of stories or stories to be told mm-hmm. or, um, or like completely just colorblind, like go the Kenneth Branagh route and just right. say, you yeah. know what? None of this matters. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, you know, but in some ways the fact that the only thing it changes is that, you know, she has kind of like average looking hair and average looking eyes and freckles and everyone is just aghast, you know, I, cause I was thinking about the story cause I'd recommended it, you know, for the, for your 
theme month. But then I was like, are we really going to have anything to talk about? Because it's just this cute little story. And then I started thinking about um, the themes of like social expectations and then how we fit in with social expectations. Because Amy's this like lovely person, you know, she is and and they kind of even say like, look, she has all these um, qualities that were bestowed upon her by the fairies. And maybe she would have grown up to be a lovely person anyway, I mean, because her sisters are apparently nice enough. Um, but it's just, you know, pe- but because she does not fit this very, very narrow mold that she is expected to fit, the people do not know what to do with her. Her family doesn't know what to do with her. You know, the servants don't know what to do with her. The royal courtiers don't know what to do with her. Um, and so it's it's an interesting examination of what do you do when you have these very rigid social expectations that are set on you. Um, and when people are like considering hiring dragons to terrorize the countryside <laughs> in order to enforce those social expectations, um, and and how do you kind of walk away from those, and then find someone else who also um, appreciates you for for the qualities that you have instead of the qualities instead of who you're not. Yeah. Um, so there definitely is. Uh, you know, things that are being addressed, as you said, like it is kind of a, you know, a simple, straightforward narrative. And a lot of I, th- I think readers with any exposure to a lot of fairy tales would see the end from the beginning, right? You know, yes. here, Here's what some of the lessons are going to be that are learned on the way. Here's a, probably several of the beats that will be, uh, you know, hit along the way. And it does those things. But it is also, as you said, um, you know, offering some critique about uh, definitely about appearance, about expectation, um, about status. Um, and uh, and it's not turning, you know, the the idea of a fairy tale on its head. Like she still mm-hmm. finds uh, happiness not because a man is going to marry her, which is you know the setup at at the beginning, but mm-hmm. because this man who she has fallen in love with, not because of his title, and he's fallen in love with her, not because of her title. Uh, you yeah. know, you know, but but it's still, you know, she's there's the happily ever after. You know, is is part of the the you know the the royal pairing <laughs> is the finale of this in a classic fairy tale way. So it's not in, inverting or uh, you know completely uh, saying there there's nothing of value in these classic fairy tales, but it does enough where the commentary is there, but also again, in some of these updates, I think sometimes you feel a little beaten over the head <laughs> with, with the messaging. And even though the title, of this is the ordinary princess, I don't feel like, uh, you know, it was overwhelming, uh, what we're yeah. being told throughout. I, I do think it's interesting at the very end when they have to go through all of the, the pomp and circumstance of a royal engagement. You know, they have to sneak back. Yeah, they have to get her <laughs> back there. Then he has to send the envoy to officially propose. And then, like, it takes months to prepare. And there's there's a there are a couple of funny bits that I didn't include in the summary. But, like, as far as they know, the king has never seen her. Um, he's just told the envoy, yeah, go go propose on my behalf. Um, and, and the ministers think it's because he wants an alliance. They don't obviously don't know that he actually knows the princess. And then like they hire a painter to paint a portrait of her that ends up looking nothing like her because they're trying to, you know, they don't want the king to back out of this arrangement. Um, so she has to write him a letter that says, by the way, I haven't changed how I look. The portrait really doesn't look anything like me. Like, don't worry. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, and he writes back and is like, yeah, I'm not worried. I hung it in a, in the stateroom where I never, where the, my, my least used stateroom. So I never have to look at it. And even when I do look at it, I 
look at it and I smile because I know you don't look like that. Um, and then they're all dressed up and so fancy and they have to pretend they don't know each other. And it's an interesting, it's a kind of interesting examination of like the role that you have to play versus the person that you are. Mm-hmm. Um, in in some ways, I kind of feel sorry, more sorry for Peregrine than for Amy in this story because truthfully, Amy would be perfectly content to, you know, wash dishes, buy a new dress, go back to the, live in the forest till that dress wears out, you know. Um, <laughs> Peregrine has to be the king like he's stuck being the king no matter what and um and if he doesn't marry his princess cousin he's supposed to marry someone like that you know so it's really um in a sense it is Amy who rescues him from his life because she's actually this wonderful person who was then of the appropriate royal stature that he can marry her um but she doesn't you know she's not looking to get married particularly um and and I also think it's interesting that like the the fairy godmother also does not seem to have some big grand plan you know she does nudge amy towards getting a job in amber but i didn't get the impression that she was like oh yes and then you'll fall in love with the king Mm -hmm. it just seemed to be like well you're you know i'm gonna make you ordinary so you have a better life and oh okay you seem to have hit a problem like well go get a job you know um and i do kind of like you know i i love a good story with foreshadowing and prophecies and fates and all this stuff but i just also really kind of like that this is just it's not like a you know scheming to make your life fit in this exact way so that you can meet the the king at the appropriate time it's just like well you got one problem at a time and you have to solve them one at a time. And you know, your current problem is you need a job. So go get a job. <laughs> yeah. That um, finale where they're scheming how they're actually getting together. It was actually one of my mm-hmm. favorite parts because that's where um, a lot of fairy tales just like, Oh, and they're in love. And now there's the happily ever after. And this yeah, takes, it's yeah. not a huge amount, but it does, it takes mm-hmm. a little bit of time to say, here's how the mechanics of them actually getting married has to play out yep. <laughs> because yep. they're, the king can't go marry the scullery maid. <laughs> yeah. it, it would be allowed. Uh, and yeah. uh, so, you know, we like you said, you get them sneaking back and uh, then pretending they've never seen each other. And, you know, the little knowing glances and uh, he's wearing or she's wearing the necklace that he made him out of uh, or he made her out of what acorns. Am I remembering it right? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, like they're just little nods to each other that mean nothing yeah. to anyone else. Um, so uh, it, it's, it, 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 that was like one of the the funner parts where it's like, okay, I don't actually know this beat <laughs> because mm-hmm. this isn't usually told in fairy tales. Yeah. Yeah. And how they're kind of miserable at the engagement that they have to be apart for so long, but it takes, you know, cause I think, I think the implication is like they, she comes back in the fall cause it's not winter yet. And they have to spend the whole winter apart and then they get married in the spring. Um, it, it also reminds me of, of, you know, a, a kind of a quote I heard once, which was like, love is the biggest inside joke in the world which mm-hmm. is just this it's this thing that the two of you understand about each other that you know people on the outside don't understand at all or they don't understand the point or they don't understand the depth of it and so like you have these two people and everyone's like oh okay these are royal people who are you know who are having this official royal engagement and you know i guess he's settling for her because she doesn't have blonde hair and blue eyes um and instead the what they love about each other and what the relationship is based on is something completely different but it's something only that they know yeah yeah i the more i think about it, i think there's there is more here <laughs> um, <laughs> no, uh to, to this um like i said this is my first time reading it and i've only had time to do it once uh and and so you know this is kind of my first pass but i yeah i, I, I 
you're raising things that uh, that intrigue me <laughs> in this discussion, <laughs> which is one of my favorite parts of the podcast is we're like, oh, you know, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Um, now I want to do maybe something that you see coming in much the way that there's genre tropes for fairy tales. I want to tie this back into Stanley and Jack Kirby and Marvel superheroes. Okay, so I saw this on the outline and I thought it was leftover from a previous and leftover and i was going to tease you that every conversation inevitably leads to conversations about stanley jack kirby and marvel superheroes Mm -hmm. so my you're ruining my joke because you've made my joke real no this was deliberate and real uh i I typed (laughs) that in for this this episode um so so in the silver age of comic books they are going to help to reimagine and redefine what superhero storytelling is uh, in, in the golden age, there were certain tropes that had become codified for for the superhero. And I'm sorry, just to clarify, the golden age is the first age, and the silver yeah, the age first is the age of superheroes. So when Superman first appears in 1938, that's considered the start of the golden age, and it's during World War II is really like the golden age of superhero comic books. Okay. Uh, and then after World War II, a lot of superhero, most superhero comics cease publication. Like there were dozens and dozens, and they all go away except for Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Those are the only ones that keep going. Um, but then there's the silver age where Uh, There's kind of like this reintroduction after a decade off of like, okay, we're going to we're going to reintroduce superheroes to readers and see see what comes. And Stanley had worked in that golden age. He knew all those tropes, but he was kind of tired of them. And with Jack Kirby uh, as as his collaborator, they decided, well, let's do something different. And they they launched the Fantastic Four, which is going to still clearly fit into the mold of superheroes and have all the generic elements that you expect. But they're also going to be tweaking just enough to make it feel new and different and uh you know progressive in terms of uh you know just a a step forward in storytelling and now for modern readers if you go back and read those first fantastic four stories and a lot of the silver age stuff it it does feel dated like but but those become kind of foundational uh you know and and now we you know we keep moving on and and tweaking what the superhero genre is and i think what this is doing for fairy tales is something similar so it's looking back and saying you know what there's these established tropes and genre elements that are good and are what audiences are looking for but for this to resonate we're gonna have to update it in some way but we don't want to update it so far that we lose the audience expectations for what they're going to get and uh the ordinary princess i think does a really good job of playing in the field of fairy tales updating it enough and leaving it still familiar but also um addressing uh some of the some of the issues with you know in that case centuries old stories yeah it's very interesting because you know you do have a fairy godmother and you do have a princess and you do have um you know threat of dragons we don't actually see the dragons but they exist in this world (laughs) but they exist somewhere yeah and you do have you know a king and you have um we're trying to get an engagement. And of course, we have my favorite trope, which is the secret identity trope. They both have secret identities. So I am all about that. Um, well, yeah, we got to tie back into superheroes somehow, right? Right. Exactly. But but it's, you know, it's, it's all approached a little bit differently. Um, and it's almost like some of the older – it's it's like – it's like those older superhero or superhero princess stories um, were doing so many of the same things that they've worn this groove and now everyone's stuck in that same groove. And so just saying like, hey, what if we just like stepped out of this groove just a little bit? You know, we mm-hmm. tweak something just a little bit and then what are all of the expectations? And, you know, really we have um, 
you have the people like the members of the royal court of both royal courts actually are kind of serving as the readers who expect like this is what a princess is like and this is what a you know princess wedding is like and this is what this is like and this is what a fairy godmother is like and this is what an evil fairy godmother is like and so they're kind of playing the the audience with the traditional expectations and then you have mmk and then um you know amy and crustacea and peregrine who are kind of updating things and approaching things from a slightly different perspective so that you can kind of um question some of those assumptions and reevaluate them and then you know bring something to life again mm-hmm. And I think one way we can kind of interrogate some of this that we're saying is let's talk a little bit about Princess Amethyst, Alexandra, Augusta, Araminta, Adelaide, Aurelia, Anne. Um, And where does she fit into the uh, protagonist role of a fairy tale? And where does she feel, you know, new and different in the protagonist role uh, of of a fairy tale? Um, And you know, this, as we said, was written in the 1980s. Uh, and so, you know, what wave of feminism are we in at that point? Um, <laughs> second or third. I'm yeah. not sure. <laughs> um, and and definitely you do have the independence, right? You know, that, that she is not going to be um, the damsel in distress. She's not going to be uh, a figure to be acted upon for the finale, you know, to be kissed, to be woken up mm-hmm. uh, or or rescued uh, or anything like that. Um, but then still also, she is definitely uh, a fairy tale princess who is going to assume a role of, you know, a royalty, you know, be, be part of a, a royal pairing um, and, and uh, these other elements. So it's not a absolute departure from that, that trope. Uh, but is there anything that stands out to you about her as a character? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I think she actually has some personality, which a lot of because <laughs> I, I was kind of comparing this to sort of like the very early Disney princesses. Um, so Snow White has brown hair because that's an important part of her of her um, backstory. But, you know, if you look at like Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty, um, Sleeping Beauty in particular kind of has no personality in the Disney version. Um, and Cinderella doesn't really very much either. Um, and so even the fact that she like has a personality and is not a blank slate is, um, is, you know, something a little bit unusual for her as a, as a protagonist in one of these stories. Um, and she's, you know, she's much more proactive than, um, than a lot of princesses often are they tend to you know maybe react a little bit more to their surroundings instead of be active but she's you know she's the one who first figures out she can go to the forest she's the one who runs away to the forest permanently she's the one who you know she's really driving every set of her every every part of her story which is a which is a really nice um it's a nice change but at the same time you do end up with a lot of those same fairy tale tropes so it is very satisfying at the end yeah um and like when you said like she she does have some personality uh there's definitely like a you know a a spunkiness uh to her and uh this sense of um individuality right where she's just gonna do uh what she wants uh and there's also i think one of my favorite moments for her as a character is when she asks like okay well how long do i have to work to be able to afford to dress and Mm -hmm. I, I, I remember the amount is like a hundred of whatever the money was. I can't remember what yeah. it was. Fantasy money, I think right? It's pennies. <laughs> um, but is it also like going to be two years or something like that? 
Is that right? I think it's going to be a year because I think she gets yeah, two one year. fennings a week. Okay. Yeah. So, so one year. And she just kind of says, okay, that's a lot of work. <laughs> but also, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to do the work. Uh, yeah. And there's, it's a simple moment, but I really like that of just like, okay, that's mm-hmm. the, the work that I have to do. So off I go. <laughs> uh, and, and that I think is telling for, for who this, this character is. Yeah. Yeah. And she even complains at one point because, um, because, you know, her fairy godmother is telling her like, yeah, yeah, you're gonna have to work. And she's like, well, I don't want to work. And the fairy godmother is like, kind of like tough. You know, this is the situation that you're in. <laughs> yeah, there, like it's it's not uh, just uh, like, well, of course I'm going to work. There is like that moment of, well, you know, I'm, I am used to the life of a princess, uh, like a neglected, ignored princess. <laughs> well, right, and it's, you know, and, and it's funny because she's a, you know, she's a princess in a cushy tower. But then when she like is in the forest with all her woodland friends. She's still a Disney princess. It's just a different <laughs> archetype of a Disney princess. You know, she's the, she's, she's um, Aurora or Snow White, you know, befriending all the animals or mm-hmm. um, Giselle from Enchanted, which also spoofed that. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, and then you end up this new phase and, and the practicality of just like, well, shoes and socks are one thing, but I need a new dress. <laughs> you know and um yeah it's 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 interesting and it's really fun it's also interesting too that like the more royal feasting and parties you have the more work you have for the kitchen maids which is a really interesting kind of reversal of her previous life even if she wasn't super involved in the courtly life before um you know all the matchmaking and all the weddings before we're making a lot of work for the servants in the castle and you know not something that she would have been aware of before Yes, it, it it does like as a reader like make you think back to the the tales of the dozens of suitors that that came by. They weren't hanging out for as long as uh, oh, what's the prince's name again? It suddenly escaped me. Peregrine. Yeah, Peregrine. Peregrine's cousin is just like I'm camping out till this marriage yes. happens. Yes, <laughs> but yes. I, I I did also like that you know what you said like there's the recognition that the choices of the royals is affecting far more people than the Royals, mm-hmm. right? which, yep. which I think in the abstract, we get those lessons pretty often in like a, uh, like a quick, this is how you be a good leader montage in these kinds of stories, mm-hmm. like to, to the person who's going to be assuming the, the, you know, the role of King. It's like, okay, now you need to realize that every choice you make is going to have these, these impacts, uh, you know, d- downstream <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, as it were. But in, in this one, like you, you see it uh, quite literally that, they are overworked and worn out because this stupid royal entourage will not leave <laughs> the, the castle. Um, and, and the longer they say, the more worn out uh, people get to the point where, um, you know, she, she's breaking plates and it's it's in some ways because she's, you know, running off and sneaking off and not getting enough sleep. But also, mm-hmm. like, she's literally just exhausted uh, because yeah. of all the plates they have to wash every single day to keep up the appearance of good royal hosts. Yeah. So have you, are you familiar with the paper bag princess? No, I, it's one of those titles that I think uh, it's been on like a couple of my kids reading lists yeah. uh, for, for like battle of the books, but I've never, so, I've never so read it. When you were talking about books that, that, you know, reverse stereotypes, it's a book that we happen to have just in the house when I was growing up and it's pretty short. It's most, it's kind of almost like a, like a picture book length. Um, but it was also published in 1980 and it's about, um, 
it's about a princess who's planning to marry a prince, but a dragon arrives and kidnaps the prince. And so then she has to look for something to wear to defeat the dragon. And she ends up that all she can wear is a paper bag. Now I'm getting um, an image of the art uh, is like suddenly returning to me. Yeah. And so at the very end, she, um, you know, she does um, defeat the dragon. um, But then when she rescues Ronald, he says, well, you don't look like a princess and you should, you know, you should come back when you look all fancy. And she says, um, and so she rejects him and says, like, you look like a princess, but you're a bum and I'm not going to marry you. And so she runs away. And that is, I think that's obviously a story that like does a lot more deconstructing um, of the princess narrative, which, you know, it, it, um, it has endorsements from like feminist organizations and stuff. Um, but I think it's interesting that those books were both published in the same year because I think the paperback princess is, you know, is really fun, but I think it's also what you're talking about where it goes so far in rejecting those stereotypes that it's, that it moves beyond them. Like, like if you want a fairy tale, you don't read the paperback princess. Like it's like, if you want a fun, you know, a fun humorous parody of a fairy tale, but it doesn't construction, Right. 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 Yeah. But it, but it doesn't like make it feel like you've been reading a fairy tale. No, and it mostly it mostly makes you know it's it's more about like you know people making the best decisions they can, and sometimes the good decision is to walk away, um, and that you know and that's a great decision, but that's also not the happily ever after fairy tale mm-hmm. decision. Um, it, it's mostly it's mostly you know in, instead of about someone finding true love, it's about someone rejecting a stereotype that's placed in front of them. Um, but yeah, it goes a lot farther than than the ordinary princess does. Yeah, and and this one does still feel like you've read a fairy tale story, mm-hmm. um, and, and so it it is able to, like I said, I I think update, uh, but but still embrace uh, the, the the genre that it, that it's playing in, and uh, I, I think that's something that we I I'm all for deconstructions, but I think there's also uh, there's a reason we love these stories, and sometimes yeah. just pure deconstruction starts to feel. Um, you know, a little tedious <laughs> at, at times. And I'm, you know, I, 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 there's excellent deconstructions that are out there. And I think it is an important thing to do to interrogate yeah. the stories uh, that, that we do enjoy. But sometimes you want to be able to have a version of the story that still gives you everything that you loved, but also removes some of the problematic aspects without really wearing you down about mm-hmm. how dare you love this thing <laughs> you, or have enjoyed versions of this thing in the past. Yeah. Yeah, because if you if you deconstruct everything, then you end up with like the opposite of what you had, which is not the same experience, which Mm -hmm. is and that, you know, and it's a great experience on its own. But it's like, you know, but what if I did want them to end up married at the end? Or what if I did want, you know, her to go back to being a princess or something like that? Um, Yeah, does that does make me a bad reader? If if I still want that happily ever after, like that, I I want the dopamine hit of a happy ending. (laughs) What is that? It's kind of a famous, I think it's an onion headline. It's either onion or, or reductress, but it's like woman decides to stop being a feminist for half an hour so that she can enjoy a TV show or something, which is like, <laughs> you know, like so you can either stick 100% to your principles and reject, you know, 99% of all media out there, or you can occasionally be like, yeah, but I like this reality show. So. It, it's um kind of like, I, I remember seeing a quote and I want to say it was from like, a culinary expert who you would assume would be like really snooty about everything. And uh-huh. they said, when you're in the mood for a pop tart, nothing is as good as a pop tart. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> yes, I want to elevate cooking, but also sometimes you just want a pop tart. 
Yeah. And I think, yes, you could be a feminist, but also sometimes you want a fairy tale and that's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That's very funny. Um, Yeah. No, a pop, you know, and it's also, it's also kind of an issue of like, what thing is the best at what it's trying to do? You know, so there's like the, like the fancy restaurant that's trying to be this experience and, and doing all this weird chemistry with food and, and, you know, solidifying things and putting things in, in gels and everything. (laughs) Or then you just have like the pizza place. That's kind of a dive, but it's a really good pizza place, you know, and like 40 years. And (laughs) yeah. And it's, and it's not trying to be, you know, or even your favorite fast food restaurant, which is still Mm -hmm. fast food, but it's not trying to be something that it's not. It's not trying to be fast casual or not a chain or, you know, um, and I, and I think there's a lot of value to being able to just appreciate, you know, like, like whatever, I mean, the the art house independent film, what that film is trying to do. And then, you know, and these aren't my cup of tea, but I have heard people rank the the Fast and Furious movies. Apparently, some of them are better than the others, but you know, <laughs> for whatever they're trying to be. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen one yet. I just imagine we're going to have to do an episode on the podcast about Fast and Furious oh, movie at some point. It is one of yeah, the yeah. biggest franchises in the world. <laughs> so right. It, it that, would feel like an omission to never address it. Yeah, and that's you know, and maybe that's a, a bad example because that's not something I'm a particular fan of. But you mm-hmm. know, a, a Disney cartoon versus an indie film versus a rom com versus, um, you know, something really experimental. Um, like you can enjoy. Oh, I, I remember I had a I had a new friend over once, and they commented that they were looking at my at my DVD shelf, and they were surprised to see both Pride and Prejudice and then the German film Run, Lola, Run. And I was like, but they're both good. (laughs) So, like, why can't we enjoy both of them? (laughs) Oh, I like that. Yeah. (laughs) They're both good. I think that should be a good good slogan for what we're trying to discuss. You know, it's all good. (laughs) Right. Um, are there any other characters in this uh, story, The Ordinary Princess, that stand out to you? Yeah, so we talked about the fairy godmother a bit. I really like her. Um, if we have, we've got the fairy I godmother. I mean, it's, it's such a flyby of a character, but also, yeah, yeah, you really do feel like this is a fully fleshed out character that just has a little bit oh, of yeah. weirdness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'll- she insults all the other fairies and, yeah. <laughs> Uh, like you you know who the it's like a a really excellent show don't tell like it just Uh every interaction is revealing layers of the onion. yeah (laughs) of yeah of who this this particular fairy godmother is even the way like she exits the scene after pointing her towards the city i because she's the water yes you know a a water fairy and it was something like like a sea otter she was gone yes (laughs) (laughs) she dove into the water like a sea otter and trying to imagine the description of her is uh, like like almost barnacled, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and then imagine that as, as like a graceful sea otter entering the right. water. It was just right. a, a delightful little image that was painted for us by by the author Kay. And and even the fact that she's the fairy of the water, which means she's like you know dripping and barnacly, as opposed to like the fairy of flowers, who probably is dressed in rose petals or something. You know, even as like the fairies go, she's kind of the weird one. You can tell. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to think. There aren't besides Peregrine and Amy and 
and uh, Crustacea, which, by the way, there are all, a lot of really fun kind of puns and plays on words with some of the names of, of kingdoms and various things. I'm trying to think if anyone even gets much of a character sketch. Um, re- re- like Marta barely gets a name. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, that, right. That's the uh, the. What what what's her title? Uh, but the one who recognizes her, her kind of yeah, gives like, up like, the, like the, the charade that they've yeah. been playing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the king the king is pretty fleshed out, but he's also just kind of a a worrier who stresses out about things, and then is well. And the other thing, so so there's um there's a theory about these kind of stories where basically like something bad happens that's kind of that something bad happens that is foreshadowed, right? And so the king says, we should not invite fairies. Something bad will happen if we invite fairies. Um, and the queen's like, it'll be fine. But then he's right, at least from his perspective. And so you do, he's an important character in terms of the foreshadowing, where he's like, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think this is a good idea. Because otherwise, if you just have someone who shows up and then is like randomly mean, then that kind of doesn't set up, you know, that's not as satisfying of a story. But for him to be like, you know, it's it's like it's like the... You know, it's like in a horror story movie or something like don't open the door or you don't go down the path. Right? You need. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. You it's just some... you just you need to have. You need to have a warning that is rashly not listened to. But then it turns out it's really not a catastrophe, but it is a catastrophe from his perspective. But, you know, it's like so. So he's not wrong, but then he's also it turns out it's not as big a deal as he thinks it is. And, you know, and hopefully um you know hopefully king king peregrine and queen now queen amy can you know maybe restore some balance to the kingdoms and <laughs> have more ordinary children and that yeah. will be okay um but yeah but i think you know i mean the queen barely has any characterization and almost everyone else just exists in terms of how they interact with the characters so yeah it is i mean it is pretty light on it you know it's only 100 pages or so yeah. it's and it's a pretty light book on on characterization for the mm-hmm. everyone else besides the main characters but um the last thing i wanted to touch on is the, this title or the uh, the curse the the ordinary princess mm-hmm. is it only her looks that become ordinary or is there anything else about her that's ordinary afterwards <laughs> So that's a good question. Like in terms of literally in terms of the curse, they do specifically say that she has all of the other fine qualities. So it's her looks. And they also talk about like, she's not very elegant. Like she's kind of gawky and awkward, even though. So it's like looks and posture or like presentation. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the fact that she, the fact that she is, because of those looks she ends up being kind of ignored by the court and left to do her own thing you know and there's no reason she can't also sit around sewing tapestries and playing with a golden ball but it's sort of like that's the you know they they could have still tried to kind of force her into that mold but because she doesn't fit the mold they she ends up even farther out of the mold and going to the forest and learning how to climb trees and somehow learning what berries and nuts are safe to eat and which ones are not. Well, it's because um, she so has think, woodland friends. That's right. That's like right. most ordinary people. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, and ends up with this very ordinary job and is like the most junior servant mm-hmm. of the most junior class of servants. Um, so I, I think it's the, you know, appearance and bearing is the most... It, it, it's like the that's the literal part of the of the curse or blessing or gift um but i think it ends up leading to 
all the other situations because of the way that her family treats her. She ends up having to be more resourceful and she also ends up not being kind of boxed in. Yeah. Um, I, I like what you're saying. Cause it, um, that, that latter part of the story where, you know, she's wandered in the woods and then she takes on, as you said, like this very ordinary job to be able to afford very ordinary clothes. Uh, yes. That's where maybe more of the ordinariness is coming rather than just the plainness of her appearance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I do have to kind of add a little asterisk. So they talk about um, the princesses, the older sister princesses sitting around and, you know, embroidering tapestries all the time as, as a sort of terrible, boring life. Um, as someone who has done cross-stitch and embroidery in the past, I would like to say that you can have a happy and fulfilling life and, and be a feminist and still partake in those activities. Um, I get a little annoyed when those are brought up as like terrible things or stereotypical things. Or like things. the, the, um, the shorthand for domestic uh, oppression. Right. Shorthand for domestic oppression or shorthand for like a fluffy life where, you know, you don't have any cares in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's not your thing, that's fine, but it can actually be very fun and lovely. And, you know, knitting likewise gets a bad rap. I probably knit more than anything else these days. So, um, so, you know, the the textile arts or fiber arts do not always have to be shorthand for um, negative stereotypes. Uh, I just got to put a plug for that. The fiber arts is one of my favorite turns of phrase that I don't think I've ever heard said out loud until this moment. Okay. And, so, and here it is. So when I lived in Illinois in grad school, we had an arrangement with the other libraries that we could borrow their books for like six months at a time, which is a long checkout time for a student. Um, but normally the other academic libraries didn't have books that like the fun books, it was all the academic books. Right. But part of our consortium was the library for the school of the art Institute of Chicago. And because they have a fiber arts program at the art Institute of Chicago, they had all these fantastic knitting books that I could check out for like months and months at a time through our in-state interlibrary loan consortium. Um, so that was really lovely. So fiber arts is an actual yeah, very school. fancy yeah. uh, term for that those group of yeah. arts and crafts. It's, so it is a field. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Although, truthfully, if it's if you're saying fiber arts, you're probably talking about something abstract that you hang in a museum. Like most knitters would probably not refer to what they do as fiber arts. It's sort of it's sort of like the in my mind, it's like the more um, the fancy museum term for that kind of work. Um, I don't know if it's a term that comes up in like folklore or, or handicraft studies or something, but yeah, no, it's, it's a legit field, although not, not one that you tend to self-describe as cause it's a little highfalutin sounding. I, I love the world. I love people's <laughs> interests. I love that there, there is so much depth of interest in this, that it, that it does have that name that feels yes, a little jargony yes. from the outside, but also yeah. is exactly what it needs to be. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> like like right. That, what else would you call it uh, at a certain point? Oh, people are amazing. There's so many fascinating things out there. Oh, world's good. Uh, <laughs> any final funny. thoughts on the ordinary princess? Oh, final thoughts. Um, you know, it's if I I reread it over the weekend, and it probably took about two hours, and it was lovely. Um, so if you want a two-hour book to read or to introduce to someone, you know, late elementary school age or older. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a I think it's a great book. I think this would be an excellent bedtime story for mm-hmm. any boy or girl, uh, you know, who, as you said, is kind of that elementary school age. Yeah. You know, beyond 
picture books, heading into chapter books, but not, you know, ready for the the heavy duty chapter books. Sure. Um, I think this would be excellent. Uh, so uh, thank you for introducing it to me. Well, I'm so glad it all worked out and that we actually found ways to tie it into comic books because we almost didn't. I know. It's, it's really important. <laughs> um, speaking of fields of study that are legitimate. That's and, right. <laughs> and established with their own dragon. <laughs> well, that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast and your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Talk to you, composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Bye-bye. Sorry. I accidentally dropped something. <laughs> yeah, no, that's um